Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration Service for the Center of Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. So we enter into the sacred moment. And we invite the breath to become conscious. And as we do so, we notice how the breath is breathing us. And how unfettered the breath is. The breath isn't engaged in a thought pattern. It's empty of thought. Yet it's fully there. So we savor the emptiness of thought. And we find that place that is free within us. And we smile. We're coming home to ourself. Jack Fowler wrote a song. And the lyrics go this way. We come together. In this moment. We bind our hearts and minds. For we all form a family woven from one life, one creation, undivided, all unique expressions of God. We come together now in one accord. So we enter into this sacred space to remember who we are. that there is only one life, God's life. And that life is waking up in its creation. And we are both that which is waking up and we are the creation in which it is awakening. And we deeply feel the intimacy of that connection. So with playful curiosity, I invite you to open your eyes and be here now. I'm doing a series this month on blessing the space between us based on John O'Donohue's little book of poetry of the same name. And uh, the first week I explored the idea of 
how we're always entering into a new beginning. When you wake up in the morning, my beloved Susan woke up the other day and she found anger greeted her the first thing in the morning. So what if every day when we wake up, we go, ah, who is going to show up in my world? Could I embrace that part of myself? Not as something I want to exile, but as something I want to include. We had our final class this Wednesday of my um, Ajashanti class, and everybody was so beautiful in their expressions of what they had um, discerned from this direct path that he spoke about. And one of the ones that I loved was Reva Walker's because usually Reva just shows up with some kind of sugar-free thing for me to eat. But this particular time she came with a big book, hardbound book by William Shatner. You all know him from Star Trek days when he would play the guy in outer space and uh, with Dr. Spock and all that sort of stuff. Beam me up, Scotty. But at age 91, he was given the gift of going actually into outer space and then coming back. And he spoke about it. And what I heard Rava say, this is what I heard, because I didn't read the book and Rava's read it now twice. What I felt that William Shatner was saying was that this earth is home, that this is his family. And when he went into outer space, it was like the vast cosmos, which kind of feels like dead. It goes for a gazillion miles. I saw they had a photograph of, of a galaxy being born. It's a hundred million years of a galaxy being born. I mean, that's pretty abstract. But then when you enter in to this domain around this little blue sapphire ball in the sky, you recognize that this is our home. This is that sacred space. And that we are in a strange sort of sense, earthlings. Maybe we're um, godlings who came to earth and so we're godlings and we're earthlings at the same time. But there was something that William Shatner had, which was a direct experience, which he transmitted to Rava Walker so she could come and transmit it to us that he was remembering something that was so much bigger. So that was Wednesday morning, Wednesday night. I came home from Satsang and Nova had a thing on the giant mangrove trees in Mexico and how these ancient, ancient trees with these root systems that go down into the, the what is that thing called? Where, the marsh in, in the water and they had little crabs crawling up on their legs and then the branches went way up into the sky and they had all these birds and frogs and every kind of nature. And in this thing on the great giant mangrove, you realize that it was one big family. And, and it made me want to go to South Mexico and to see this, this life form that is so much bigger, but contains all other forms of life. And then I heard Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz saying, never look any further than your own backyard, because if you can't find it there, you won't find it at all. And as I walk through my humble little gardens here in Huntsville, there is a plaque on one of the walls that says, we are all flowers in the garden of life, each one of us different because human truth is one. We are all flowers in this beautiful garden of life with our own unique expression because human truth is one. So in this one life, it has multiple expressions and we are that. We are the one life, we are the source, we are the journey through the Holy Spirit, how it manifests in the world, and then we are the goal, we are the manifestation. We are the individualized expression of that something. Well, that's kind of a big idea, Michael. There's only one here. And then you get to have a relationship with it. Isn't that kind of funny? You know. Anyway, so...
One of my teachers is a man named Kabir Helminski, and he went with us to Istanbul, and we traveled with the Sufis. And it was an experience that I'll never forget. And he wrote a little book called The House of Remembering. And again, he's from the Mevlevi order of the Sufi lineage, which is the order that Rumi was in. And in the Mevlevi order, they say all is a remembering. You remember him and he remembers you. And so he explains what we do on this path of awakening in a way that really resonates with my soul. So I'm just going to give you a taste of this. Remember, it was the Buddha said, you don't learn from experience, you learn from your capacity to experience. So the question on this Sunday morning is, what is your capacity to expand your awareness into the one family, knowing that it's all an aspect of your own self? I was thinking this morning, I woke up and I was, all of a sudden, 1999, about this time of year, it was in November, because I remember Barbara had Thanksgiving at the farm and Trey went there, and I was in South Africa at the time. He loved that particular Thanksgiving, 1999. I'm sitting in South Africa, and the very first woman that spoke at the Parliament of the World Religions <coughs> was an African woman who said she had lost all five of her children from AIDS. This is when the AIDS crisis was all over Africa. And she says, I want you to know that we are all the mother and these are all our children. And if I got nothing else from that whole conference, I woke up to the realization how we're all one family, that they're all our children. So what is your capacity to expand the field of your interconnectedness to the one life? You're not separate from anyone. I heard Bill Clinton, not Bill Clinton, um, Barack Obama, ranting about the discord in this country when people are talking about good and evil and right and wrong and going after others. And, and, and Obama, in his, from his heart of hearts, says, if we can't learn to get along with each other, we're going to destroy each other. And I just took a step back and I said, okay, we got to learn to get along with each other. So what is our capacity to build bridges of connections? Did you hear that they had a shooting in um, Colorado Springs, where five gays were killed at a gay bar and 18 are in the hospital. Another one of those kill the gay kind of things. It doesn't make you feel safe, does it, if you're a gay person? Anyway, what's your capacity? We're intending to awaken a capacity, he says, Kabir, to see and to, to be present with what is. Ultimately, that capacity is going to lead to something quite extraordinary. Well, why would it be extraordinary, Michael? Because you won't even exist anymore. There'll be a higher consciousness flowing through you that'll blow you away. Well, I think that's what he's talking about, don't you, Sylvia? I think so. Ultimately, the capacity is going to lead to an extraordinary experience. Aside from ourselves, aside from who we think we are, ultimately, it's going to lead to a relationship of what we would call divine guidance. Well, you're divinely guided, Susan. You don't have to go to any more books. You can just listen to that voice. Divine guidance, wisdom, he says, and the source of cosmic love itself. Well, Miss Donna, the source of cosmic love itself? It's not just that sweet little husband of yours. It's the cosmic love of the universe. What's your capacity to open to that? I love this guy. When we live in that reality and are aware of this presence, well, then we are in remembrance. Well, just stop and feel. That's why I love the ringing of the bell. You can feel that silence, that stillness. You can feel that peace that passes all understanding. You can feel the love 
that never goes anywhere, that's always there? What's your capacity to just open? Hey, come on in. Good to see you. You look like a movie star with your sunglasses. You can take them off now, darling. We can realize that we are not just the content of our experience. We're also the beautiful context of the experience. Now, they use that phrase content and context a lot. Content would be the thoughts that are in your mind. The context would be that field of awareness out of which thought arises. So you're that field of awareness, Terry boy, but you're also those neurotic thoughts that the little one has. Well, could you identify it with the field instead of this? That's the capacity. So how able are we to go deeper, Michael? He's asking the question. All the heart wants is expanding friendship of the one with itself. Everything we've been studying, it says lead with your heart because the heart knows oneness, whereas the head wants to judge as right or wrong. What if we could meet in that field of love? I, I shared with you last week, I was so deeply moved by this young woman from Missoula, Montana, who's a trans, who when all this draconian uh, laws were being made in Montana, she says, I have to come out and be visible. I have to show people that I'm a sweet, loving person. She ran for office and she won. She said, if enough of us go out there and are be seen by the world, they won't hate us anymore. So what's your capacity to love, for your heart to open, for you to find friendships? And he says, Kabir, it is the friendship of other conscious beings and other conscious hearts who are in that state of remembrance as you are and in that state of coherence and resonance, that's what lifts the world up. Well, I guess that says it all. We come together, we connect in that coherent field of divine love. When two or more are gathered in that vibration, it has a way of transmitting itself and moving out in the world. Is he pointing towards something? We all form a family woven from one life, one light, one love, one creation, undivided, all unique expressions of the same one. We come together in one accord. So what's that accord? Is it to create harmony and balance and a dialogue with one another, a heart-to-heart -heart communication, not focusing on what separates us, but what unites us? Could, that's what Barack Obama was saying. We've got to come together as a country, as a united country and work together because if we don't work together, we're going to destroy each other. And I want to live in that kind of country where we can see potential and possibility, where we build bridges of love and understanding. Someone was saying that someone was asking them about what our center is all about. And I had that conversation with someone the other day and, and I said, well, you know, I said, we're the kind of place that embraces all people. And I shared that one Sunday I came and there was a young trans that was standing in the bookstore and I'll never forget it. And uh, she was from Moulton and she got thrown out from Moulton and she went to Coleman. She got thrown out from Coleman and she was standing in our bookstore. And I put my arms around her and I said, well, you are welcome here. And then Michael got her some clothes to wear. And, and it was like, I said, that's the kind of place we are. So if that's the kind of place you want to come, you're welcome to come. And if that's the kind of place that you want to stay away from, well, then have at it because we have to be true to ourselves. Last Sunday, I spoke on the idea of coming home to yourself. And I did that beautiful prayer of John O'Donohue's that I committed to memory because I thought it was worthy of committing to memory. When something is really good, whatsoever things are lovely and of good report, think on these things, you know? Um, the very first thing I can remember memorizing was Krishnamurti who said, in oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and to learn, well, then the door is there and the key is in your hand, but no one gives you the key or the door to open except yourself. And with that little admonition, I went within and I began to discover. 
And did I find my wholeness? Most of the times I found my fragmentedness. I was so deeply moved by Susan in her final project on the Wednesday class because she pulled out my old friend Jeff Foster. And Jeff Foster says, you can't come home to yourself and to the one family of humanity if you can't come, to, come home to your wounded self, the part of us that we've exiled. It has to start with our own self. You know, we can't think about being in cosmic consciousness with the universe, and yet we have this wounded little part of ourselves that's neurotic and afraid. And so then you hear John O'Donoghue, may all my forgiveness, be, my unforgiveness be released, and may all my fears uh, yield their deepest tranquilities, and may all that is unlived within me blossom in a future graced with love. So could we open to a life where all of it is, is, is embraced, the unforgiveness, the fears, the anger, and know that when you go into the dark places, it's going to yield tranquility, Miss Susan. Well, I think that's a nice little idea. Let's see what Jeff Foster has to say about it. He said, love's deepest commitment, it's love's deepest commitment, the deepest commitment is one that cannot be broken, one that cannot be lost. It is to love itself, it's to love presence, it's to meeting in the here and in the now, and to bring and show all of ourselves, to tell the truth to ourselves today, knowing that our truth may change tomorrow, and that's okay, to listen to each other, to bow before each other's experience, even if our hearts are broken and tender, even if we trigger the deepest pain in each other, the most profound disappointment and the strongest urges and longings, rather let us commit to meeting our own pain. Let's meet each other right where we are. And if the pain body shows up, whoa, I think you know we'll have to hold the pain body, Mr. Michael. You know, that's a wonderful thing when you have an animal and the animal comes to you afraid. You're not gonna shame the fear out of the animal, are you? You're gonna pick up the little frightened pug and hold him in your arms. It was so sweet, we'd had the church picnic and it was cold that day and Serena Sage was sitting at the picnic table and Humphrey was in a stroller and she noticed that he was shivering. And so being codependent, she wanted to find a towel to wrap him in and she said she had a conversation with him and Humphrey told her that he needed something. So she went out and bought a very fleecy Fido piece of felt fabric and she made him a little blanket and she brought it to class. And I wrap that little pug in his Fido blanket. He sits in the car and he's happy as could be because of his shaking, because of his, she didn't shame him saying, you're a dog, you got fur, you should be able to handle this. No, 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 she wrapped him and held him in her arms. And maybe we get to do that with our own self. He said, this is uh, Jeff Foster, let us commit to meeting our own pain. Yes, love is a field, he says, it's not a form. So let us commit to a field of love. And remember that field in every moment of our precious days on this planet Earth and devote ourselves to that field of love in the eternal now. We're going to do the little class on Emerson, the seven teachings. And one of the Emerson's great teachings is all you ever have is the eternal now moment. And he also says one of his great teachings is nothing on the outside can really take your foundation away from you. And so could then we open and then he says, ultimately, we must seek God from within ourselves, not outside yourself. Even though we can see it reflected everywhere in this beautiful universe, ultimately, the only God you will understand is the one that awakens from within, where that gnosis starts to awaken. 
that knowing starts to flower within your being. And then you get to say, ah, what is this leading me to? It's leading me to a life that's integrated. It's leading to a capacity to see with different eyes, to see with new eyes. Um, one of the great teachers I've been inspired by is a Franciscan monk named Richard Rohr. And he talks about the necessity of the contemplative path. And the contemplative path is the path where everything is a sacred portal to the divine. And when you see life as the journey home, and then life gives you, my prayer partner said this morning, he says, you know, life will never give you what you want, but it always gives you what you need. And sometimes what you need is a feeling of betrayal or a feeling of abandonment or an awareness of the acquisitiveness of people, how they're so attached to their stuff that their stuff actually binds them instead of setting them free. So we get to see these patterns within ourselves as they unveil themselves. And then could we go to compassion and to forgiveness and to acceptance and then the willingness to make a subtle shift? Could I let go of those attachments that are binding me? Could I forgive somebody that I've heretofore said harmed me and that I have a justifiable resentment? No, could I set myself free and them free through the simple act of forgiveness? Well, then you understand what Jesus was pointing to. You know, he said, and so in this lovely little book, just this Richard Rohr, he says, what's required is a Moses experiment experience. Now, you remember what happened to Moses. Again, it's a metaphor because historians don't even know whether Moses really lived. But Moses is a metaphor for the archetypal pattern of the hero's journey when someone wakes up. Moses went to Midian for 40 years. Remember, 40 represents the time you need to be in order to wake up. He was in Egypt for 40 years and in the wilderness for 40 years. It's not a literal number. It's a metaphorical number of however long that takes you. So for 40 years, Moses was in Egypt. You might say he was in the ego. He was in the acquisitive part that's wanting to acquire and achieve and judge. And then when he kills the Egyptian, he has to flee Egypt. And that's where he goes to Midian. And Midian is a place of going within. It's a place of doing the work on yourself. And he was in Midian for 40 years. And he was tending his flock around a well. Now, the flocks represent gentle thoughts. And the well is that deep place within. So he had to go deeply within, tending those gentle flocks of thoughts, the sheep represent thoughts, and after 40 years, well, guess what happened, Terry boy? He started having a conversation with a bush that was on fire from within, but it wasn't consumed by the light. In other words, the light within him was waking up and everything was preaching a gospel that he could now hear because he'd gone through this existential shift. That's what we're asking you to do, to die to the old way of seeing things, and to wake up into the Moses consciousness, the universal Christ, the awakened Buddha, whatever you want to call it, it wakes up. Here's how he phrases it. Contemplation, where you see everything is sacred, contemplations allows you to see the truth of things in their wholeness. It's part of the one life. Remember Ernest Holmes, there's one life, that life is God's life, that life is perfect, that life is our life. Now, when you know that, you've got to be so humble to say that. My God, it's all God's life, Adam, all of it. He said, it is a mental discipline and a gift that detaches us even neurologically from our addiction to our habitual way of thinking and from our left brain, which likes to think it's in control. Your left hemisphere is the one that always has the list, that wants logic, that has goals. Your right brain's very imagistic. It, it's like your childlike brain. It loves metaphor and story and can, can get lost 
in poetry. So he's saying your left brain wants to, <laughs> and your right brain. So could you imagine a doorway between the left and the right hemispheres where the, the right hemisphere can inform the left and the left can work, and you're, you're integrated, you're balanced. He's pointing toward that. Trust me. Okay, we stop believing our little binary mind, which strips things down to two choices, and then usually identifies with one of those choices. That's duplicitous thinking. My way is the right way, their way is the wrong way. Anybody resemble that, Amit? No, none of you. No, no binary thinking here. Can't imagine it. Anyway, mm. we stop believing in our little binary mind. Okay. And we begin to recognize the inadequacy of this limited way of knowing reality. In fact, it is the binary mind is a recipe for superficiality, if not insanity. Oh, no, I didn't. Um, only the contemplative or the deeply intuitive can start venturing into a much broader and more open-ended horizon. And this is probably why Einstein said the imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, whereas the imagination encircles the mystery of the universe. Well, he's telling us to dive into our imagination and our intuition and get out of the logical mind. What does an engineer think about that, Mr. Michael? Well, I think you have to marry a mystic to find that one out. So he goes on to say, to begin to see with new eyes, we must observe and usually be humiliated by the habitual way we encounter our life with our little Nazi in the head. Whoa, I can't imagine anybody could relate to that one, could they, Mr. Terry Boy? Few of our responses are original, fresh, or naturally respectful of what is right in front of us. The most common human responses to a new moment are mistrust, cynicism, fear, knee-jerk reaction, and a spirit of dismissal, and an overriding judgmentalism. Will anybody resemble a judgmental attitude in here? Oh, well, good, there's a judgment over there. And he says we can't avoid it. It's our nature to judge. It's our nature to be cynical. So is there a possibility, Miss Rayla, that we could evolve? Lastly, he says, let us let the moment teach us. We must allow ourselves to be at least slightly stunned until it draws us inward and upward toward a subtle experience of wonder and awe. And then I wrote the big words, Moses. Yep, Moses. He was struck by awe. He takes off his shoes and feet represent understanding. So the, the shoe would represent the prophylactic that's keeping you from an understanding. So Moses, take off your shoes right where you stand is holy ground. This is the voice from the bush to Moses. Struck by awe, he takes off his shoes because he has met beingness itself. The narrative reveals the classic pattern that's repeated in different forms in varied lives of extraordinary individuals. The, the lives of the mystics. The spiritual journey is a constant interplay between moments of awe that are followed by a general process of surrender into that moment. It takes your breath away and then you can open to receive the grace of it. Well then, I think we're here to listen, aren't we, Mr. Adam? We're here to tune into the tree. We're here to know that suddenly the raindrops that fall have a meaning. And then life becomes so much mm, sweeter. You know, Judy wrote that lovely little book of poetry and in it she'll, she'll sit at the river and, and the river will talk to her. 
there's a, a wonderful book that someone gave me, and it was called The Last Barrier, and it's the life of a young man in search of truth. And um, I devoured this from the beginning to end. I, I pulled it out yesterday. At the very end of The Last Barrier, this young man is on the mountaintop in Greece, and he's going to see the holy man. And as he's climbing up to see the holy man at the top of the mountain, all of a sudden, he starts having a conversation with light. Light is communicating. It's almost like the Moses experience. He said, I've been looking at that light before, but now the light's speaking to me. And then he passes a waterfall and the water starts talking to him. And he says, oh my God, not only am I listening to it, but it has a message for me. And then the wind starts preaching. And when he gets to the very top of the mountain, he experiences oneness with everything. And he realizes the holy man was, was the planet herself communicating to me, but finally I was able to hear it his own little Moses experience. So everywhere, the material is the way to the spiritual. The visible is the way to the invisible. And when we see contemplatively, we know that we live in a fully sacramental universe where the trees have a message and the water has a message and the sun has a message. Could we say, teach me and show me the way? the watercourse way, the way of Serena did her final project on the Tao Te Ching and how the Tao, which is the way, it follows the least effort because it's always there. So in doing nothing, everything gets accomplished. He's pointing to the same thing. When we see contemplatively, we know that we live in a fully sacramental universe where everything is a pointer and everything is an epiphany. This is the pattern that's revealed throughout the Bible, says Richard Rohr. And while philosophers tend toward the universals and poets love the particulars, it's the mystics who teach us how to encompass both. Now, what is a mystic? <laughs> mystic is someone who sees God everywhere, who has let this divine presence awaken within them and all they see is themselves. And, uh, and you are that mystic and so am I. I wanted to close with an article from a, a garden magazine, uh, English Garden. And at the very end of this very left brain magazine, all the best plants to get and the ways to do the garden, at the very end, they tell a story of an old British garden that had been there for a very, very long time. And in that garden, there was an old pear tree who had been around maybe 200 years. And so when it became on the National Trust, the powers that be with the formal garden says, you're gonna have to get rid of that old pear tree. And they said, but this tree, is the historic tree of the garden. All the, the the dogs and the cats were buried under the tree. And so she, she says this about, she says, you can't have a tree like this, the uh, people said with the, land, uh, the National Trust. She says, but I made a plan that, uh, I don't have my readers today. Mm. Um, I made a plan where we could keep the old tree and incorporate it uh, in the garden with its twisted trunk and its shattered crown, it became the glory of the garden, a living example of if you left something along in a deliberate flow, people would say, what is with that old, wonderful tree that is nearly dead in these otherwise perfect formalized gardens? Because it had certain soul. But then as fate would have it, the tree decided to give up the ghost the very end of the magazine. Then last summer, the tree, having flowered its heart out, made her transition, Miss Susan. We had seen it coming. Over the years, it had dropped bigger and bigger branches. Um, so we came, 
we had to take her down. And we worked out a system where it would be done so respect respectfully, where nothing was hurt around her. But he says, before we cut it down, the landscaper climbed to the tippy top of the tree and it took a photograph of all the land for which that tree had been the steward all those years. And he took a photograph. Here is from the top of the tree, a rainbow formed over the land. And it shows all the land. And this is what the tree would have looked down on with her grace-filled presence. And at the end, he says, before he cut it down, he climbed to the top of the tree and he took a photograph of the garden from the pear tree, from the tippy top point, as it had been watching all those years while the garden took shape around it, a green garden with yew hedges and cloisters and turf. This is in topiaries and temples. But in the photograph, arching over the garden was a perfect rainbow, as if to say, everything is as it should be. Well, I think the tree's saying, I'm still here, you know. Um, Lee's aunt made her transition recently, and um, his uncle is still around. And when something leaves, like an old tree or an old relative, I always remind those that are still there that they're still there that their essence is there. Their form isn't there, but their essence is there. And so what if we get to see things with fresh eyes, you know, like the, the spirit of the tree still exists in that lovely, lovely garden. And um, yeah, like the mangrove. So I'm gonna ask my brother Lee to go over to the mindfulness bell. Notice how. Thank you, Lee. Uh, we return. We return to that still place. And we reflect on the consciousness that is flowing within us in this sacred moment of now. We observe the mind its nature to think and there's a part of us that is smiling at this lovely mind of ours because just like turning off of a television set we can turn off that uh, thinking mind and yet we're still there there's an awareness that's there that's fully present uh, and it has a capacity to wait there's a phrase from the Bible that says, wait upon the Lord. And you can translate that to wait upon the law. And there is a spiritual law that is always operating in the universe. And we are co-creators with that law through thoughts that we choose to think, through beliefs that we engage in, through emotions that we mm, cultivate. We are literally co-creating with the universe. And so in this holy instant of now, we put the operating center on hold and we just decided to listen. Listen, listen, listen to our heart song, to that which is waking up within the soul of our being. And to be patient, knowing that oftentimes 
when the heart starts to reveal a personal truth to us, it does so in a unique way that we can assimilate. Silence is the language of God. And we learn to embrace the silence all around us. And reflect from the silence within us that it is the same silence. And then you hear that admonition, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. So we rest as that stillness, as that peace, as that sense of wonder and awe in this beautiful light of the one that is waking up within its creation, not only within our hearts, but within the family of life itself. Life is waking up. Richard Rohr calls it the universal Christ. And these are the times and we are the ones in order for that awakened loving self to emerge on planet Earth. And the consequence of that, well, the leaves, the bushes will start speaking to us and right, remind us that right where we stand is holy ground and we will have our Moses experience. Not as the exception, but as the example So now I'd like you to imagine that you are in that old pear tree at the top of the pear tree. And the pear tree is now invisible because it's in the spirit world. But yet you are still elevated on a perch to look out over a vast horizon, a horizon that you know well, that you look down upon. And just like that ancient pear tree is looking down upon its garden, there are forces and lives looking down upon us. And all we get to do is smile and to know that they are there, assisting us in the expansion of consciousness so that that one life can endlessly be revealed in unique and beautiful ways. We are all flowers in the earth garden of life, flowers of different colors, because human truth is one. And so we open to the truth of our being we smile. And now we take a moment to give great thanks for all the blessings in our life and to open that space of love within ourselves 
as we anticipate our Thanksgiving on the horizon, where individuals come together to be loved, to be seen, to be heard, to be accepted, to share the space between us. And may all that is unforgiven between us be released. <laughs> and may the moments that trouble us yield their deepest tranquilities. And above all, what is unlived in us, may it blossom in the future, graced with love and ease and cheerful expectancy. And so with great anticipation for a beautiful Thanksgiving, I want you to open your eyes, look at your own self all around you, because there's only one here, and let's join with the heart salutation by placing our hands on our hearts and saying, I honor you, I respect you, I love you, you are an aspect of myself. The one family in me bows to the one family in you. I guess there's only one here. And we're it. So happy Thanksgiving, family. I love you guys. There's a board meeting after this. There's a sign-up sheet for the class. Um, and there won't be any uh, Wednesday night satsang. It's Thanksgiving and we're having dinner Thanksgiving night or Wednesday night. So, uh, But I'll see you the week after. And um, we'll have a new class and a new satsang. listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.